when you go through a big change, there's this whole process of of giving birth to yourself and to the life that you want and the relationships that you want and just like giving birth to that. And there's a lot of like labor pain (laughs) around that. And then there's a lot of healing and recovery on the other side of that birth. I'm Kavita Rajagopalan, and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and here we are together again, finding the light in the darkness and proving there's still so much good out there. That's what we do here at World Gone Good. If you like what we do, share us with your friends, subscribe to the show where you're listening right now. And hey, why not leave us a quick, quick, quick rating and quick, quick, quick review. That would be so good for anyone and everyone who has done all those things already or any of those things. Or you're going to go do it right now. We say thank you. You may or may not know this, but I got my first uh, start writing plays. I put my very first play up. It was called Mother's Day up in L.A. in the previous century <laughs> in 19. 19- 93. And my last show went up 19 years ago in 2004. Hopefully this one that's coming up will be worth the wait. The one coming up is called Happy Birthday McKenna. And it opens on March 3rd at the Hudson Backstage in LA. It's a dark comedy. You should come see it. Check out hbmtheplay.com. That's hbm for Happy Birthday McKenna, theplay.com. All the info and tickets are right there. We're up for 12 shows only in March. Come have a laugh with us, hbmtheplay.com. And now on to the good. <laughs> One of my favorite human beings on the planet is here with me today, Kavitha Rajagopalan, and I text each other way too much. We were having like a texting affair. Texting, not sexting, texting. Calm down. And we're both not ashamed to admit it. Kavi is married to Matt. They have two wonderful children, and they all live in Brooklyn. A few years ago, they received the devastating news that their son had a life-threatening disease. They went through hell for years, and then the good arrived. He didn't just get better. He didn't just survive. He's thriving, and he's completely healthy now. Well, not completely healthy. He's a kid, so he's going to be around other kids and get sick the way other kids do with their colds and their flus and their strep throats, and they're going to bring it all home and make you sick and ruin everything. That's why I don't have kids. Here's the thing. <laughs> he can be around the kids. That's that's the thing. He can be just a kid again. I'm going to let Kavi tell you the rest. Oh, one quick note. We recorded this back in December, and I had planned to make this our final episode of the year. But the holidays got away from me, and well, here we are. Don't judge me. The holidays get away from you, too. Liars. That's what holidays do. Damn them. So if you hear any references to New Year's, New Year's Eve, resolutions, you'll understand why. Well, it is no secret that I end the year a certain way because I've done it for three years in a row now, two years ago. We ended the year with Ingrid Clay. Last year, it was Christy Hine. Zuh. She's going to kill me because I just said her singular version of her last name. Hines. 
And this year, for the third year in a row, I am ending the year of my show with a brown woman, a woman of color, because there's no better way to end your year or spend your year (laughs) than with a brown woman. I'm so happy you're here. How are you doing? I'm so happy to be here. I'm doing pretty good. Battling the year-end flus and colds and what have you, but I always take that as a sign that it's time to just slow down, drink hot beverages, look out the window, chillax. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So this is World Gone Good, and I have a show where we talk about good things. We start wide, we move our way in, so I'm going to ask you a really wide one. What is good about Kavi Kavitha? What is good about me? Um, well, the best thing is that after a long, long battle to save my son's life, he was born with a life-threatening condition. Um, this year, he is officially well. And that has transformed the entire landscape of my life. So I feel like, you know, I'm able to see the world in different colors and reconnect with a new version of myself and, you know, build relationships with my loved ones in completely different ways. And that goes so far beyond good. It's transformative. It's, you know, rebirth, which is you know, can be painful and pain is not always good, but overall, by and large, it just means that, you know, the world has switched from, you know, dark and gray to technicolor, like the land of Oz, only that's reality. So everybody knows I grew up in a cul-de-sac in Randolph, New Jersey, and two little boys moved in next door with their family. And the younger of the two boys married the woman I'm talking to, which is really weird when we get to that point and (laughs) do that map of how we know each other. (laughs) But you went on to have two children, yeah, a daughter and a son, and you're just talking about that son. So tell everybody a little bit about the journey, what he had, what he has, just so to catch everybody up a little bit so they understand what you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, my husband, Matthew, who is your childhood friend, um, is black and I'm Indian. And so we assumed my family comes from a caste oppressor community in southern India, which means that we've practiced arranged marriage for several hundred, maybe thousand generations, which means that, you know, pretty much everybody in my community knows each other. They marry each other. It's all very endogamous. And so I thought, here we're doing something truly radical. My father was the first person in his family to leave India, to leave the country, and was the first person to settle here. And so because of that, um, I think we were exposed to a different way of living and a different type of culture. And I never grew up with that kind of endogamous mindset, even though I'm sure my parents wished that they could inculcate me with it. They wanted it. But, you know, it's just not possible to be that insular when you are an immigrant in a new country. And so, you know, I was I was excited about the prospect of marrying outside of the community, of bringing, you know, new energy um, into my family, which frankly, I think really needs to be tested in a lot of different ways, that kind of insular mindset desperately needs to be challenged. 
um, and dismantled. And so I was really excited about all of this. But lo and behold, irony of ironies, when Matthew and I um, had our second child, our first daughter was born. She's healthy as an ox. I mean, she could run through brick walls like Wiley e. Coyote and come out unscathed. She's tough. Like, she's fine. She never gets sick. You know, she is physically strong. She's almost as tall as me at 10. And she's just, you know, she's an athlete. She's fine. But the little one, the younger one, when he was born, first of all, he came out looking exactly like his father, which was really sweet. Um, but he also, when he was born, was born with an incredibly rare life-threatening primary immunodeficiency, which is an autosomal recessive disease. It means that both Matthew and I had the same defect on the same little substrand of the same gene, um, which is really ironic, I think, and also weird and sort of unheard of that two people from such vastly different communities, you know, notwithstanding the fact that Black Americans are extremely, you know, kind of heter heterogeneous in general, and South Indians are too. I mean, we come from um, a place where there's been just a tremendous amount of you know, civilizational, um, I guess, discourse and transcourse and people moving and migrating and lots of mixing. Um, our people have, uh, I think the story goes that um, my particular group of people have been in Southern India for about three to 5,000 years, but those were an incredibly complex three to 5,000 years. We had, you know, you had Yemeni traders and Latin traders and Roman traders and you know, then, of course, you know, colonial rulers from all over, you know, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, um, and then on to the British Empire. And, you know, Madras, where my family is from, was one of the major administrative seats of the British colonial rule. And so because of that, there's just been a tremendous amount of mixing on our side as well. And so to have these two people who come from incredibly mixed communities that have experienced colonization, displacement, you know, intermarriage, intermixing, to find that we both had the same, that our child ended up with an autosomal disease was really mind-blowing to me. Um, but we didn't find it right away. I think we're lucky that we live in New York, so we were able to get him diagnosed by the time he was four months old. But he turned out to have a disease called leukocyte adhesion deficiency, which basically means that the immune system's GPS doesn't work. So the white blood cells that normally are created and then rush to the site of infection when you say cut your finger or you know stub your toe or scrape your knee, those, those white blood cells, first of all, did not know where to go. And second of all, did not know how to fight infection at the site. So what that means is if you get a cut and you get some bacteria in the cut, then usually those white blood cells will wall off that infection so that they can fight it there. But what happens now is there's now a risk of those little bacteria entering your bloodstream, attacking your brain, your heart, your cerebrospinal fluid, what have you. Um, so what basically means is that kids with this type of deficiency, and in my son's case, it wasn't a deficiency, it was a complete absence of this particular protein that's needed to direct this process, it was a complete absence. So basically, um, his doctor told us that, you know, we had to go to transplant, that bone marrow transplant was the only cure for this condition, which basically resets the immune system from start, and that we had to go to transplant within two to three weeks in order to save his life. But here's the other side of it. 
in order to find a, a, a trans to have a successful transplant, one of the biggest threats is that you transplant the immune system or the bone marrow with somebody who has a completely different immune system than yours and that is not a match to yours, then that immune system can in turn start attacking you from the inside. And that's one of the biggest kind of life-threatening circumstances of transplant aside from return malignancy. Now, thankfully, Christian did not have a malignancy, so he didn't have to get a transplant. That was not a risk for him. It wasn't likely that his disease would come back. If the transplant was successful, then he'd be cured. So we set about find, looking for um, a, a donor. And of course, they told us that even if it was just a deficiency and not a complete absence, that with this type of disease, you know, children often would not survive infancy. So we were very urgent. We were like, let's do this. Let's go. We'll look in every single registry around the world. And we were very lucky that we were at Sloan Kettering where they had access to some of the top research from the NIH. We were, our, our transplant um, doctor, our hematology doctor who was working with us was on the phone with researchers from all over the world. And ultimately we couldn't find a match donor anywhere in the entire world because because back to the circle, Matthew and I are from such completely different backgrounds, genetically speaking, um, that you know ultimately we couldn't find a single match for him anywhere in the world. So what that meant is that we had to basically keep him in a bubble in the hospital for about three months. He was kind of a bubble boy. None of us could go in and out of the room, including me. I stayed with him in the hospital, but I had to wear a mask gown, gloves, hairnet every single day. So I couldn't touch him. I had to stop nursing him. So we had to transition him to formula so that he couldn't get any infections from me just by drinking milk from me. And we could not have visitors. He couldn't eat outside food. Like it was an extremely intense bubble. And then we got him basically the whole time that he was in the bubble, he was on these high dose IV antibiotics just to get all of those infections that he developed and could not clear for the first four months of his life out of his body, doing all of this testing. Ultimately, we decided that I would have to be his donor, um, which is kind of exciting emotionally for me. I think spiritually and emotionally was cool because it means that I got to give him life twice, but it also meant that I was a half match. And um, then the risk of him developing this secondary disease called graft versus host disease was very real. Um, we ultimately went through the transplant. I think in order to reduce the risk of graft versus host disease, they followed a different type of transplant approach. And they told me, his doctor told me that ultimately he was the very first pediatric patient in the United States to have his transplant protocol. It had just been approved for clinical trials in the United States that week that we did it. And so ultimately, we were able to give him a transplant. It was rough, rough, rough. He had a terrible time. After transplant, he ended up staying in the hospital for another four months. We almost lost him so many times. But then after that, you know, he came out and everything was perfectly fine for a few months. And then lo and behold, he developed graft versus host disease. So then that meant a six year long battle basically to keep him safe from infection while 
um, his body was adjusting to his new immune system. We tried to suppress the immune system in every possible way. All of the medications that we used to suppress his immune system are toxic. So he developed, you know, kidney damage, you know, structural, he had musculoskeletal issues, all of these challenges. And it was a really, really scary time. But now six months late, six years later, he is in school. He is off of all of his immune suppression. And as it turns out, his body is bouncing back. They told us to be prepared for him to have lifelong heart issues, lung issues, kidney issues, you know, cognitive function issues. And it turns out that none of that is happening. He is bright. He is wild. He has a huge bucket list that starts with riding every single train on the New York City subway system. <laughs> and he's just living his best life. And we're just all along for the ride at this point. What goes through your head when you have one experience with a first child and you're prepped for maybe the same, second similar experience and you get a left hook like this. Do you remember being like a moment or just a shift you made? Because it's such a different role than just being a mother. Okay, here's my second kid. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, let's, let's go back and add a little context. Right after Matthew and I got engaged, which was in 2007, um, his mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she was 58 years old, so young. And we, she was living alone at the time. So we were very involved in caregiving her. She thankfully had an enormously close group of friends. Um, she was a master quilter and a doll maker. And so she spent most of her days in this kind of sewing circle with this group of women who really rallied around her. and. Um, you know, she passed away before she got to meet any of her grandchildren, um, which was, you know, an incredible source of sorrow for all of us. And when my daughter was born, she was born in 2011. She was born, I think, um, she was the first granddaughter who had been born. So we wanted to, you know, we wanted to give her her grandparents' blessing. So we wanted to give the children and Indian first names, just because they're growing up in this culture and, you know, they're, they're multicultural children, but we also wanted them to be able to have some sort of connection to this heritage. And then we wanted to give them middle names that would kind of ground them, not just to their wider cultures, but to their families and their ancestors. So we wanted to name my daughter, um, give her her grandmother's middle, her grandmother's name as her middle name, which actually turns out that was her middle. She went by her middle name anyway, Elizabeth. Um, so we named her Leela Elizabeth because exactly a year before she'd passed away, my um, my oldest aunt had passed away and her name was Leela. And we thought they sounded really lovely together. But more than that, my my grandmother on my mother's side was married off when she was eight years old. You know, she was a child bride, she had survived incredible sorrow. She was the oldest of five, and all of her other siblings had passed away. She had watched all of her baby brothers and sisters die, like in her house. 
And so by the time she was eight years old, she was an only child. And I think her parents were just so traumatized. They wanted to make her feel safe. And I think safety is bound up so much in having somebody married off and settled in so many cultures around the world. So they married her off at eight, which I think they thought they were doing something good by her. But I, you know, in in retrospect, I see how that cascading effect of that, of that, you know, traumatic experience has shaped every aspect of my aunt's lives, so many of my cousins, and even me and now even my daughter. But I wanted to name Mila um, after my oldest aunt because that was my grandmother's first child when she was a teenager, 13 years old. Her first child died. Her second child was my aunt Lila, who survived. And she was the first child that she got to name. She got to name her for herself. And I thought that was so powerful. And then we married that name together with Elizabeth. So I tell you all of this, this is all context just to tell you that, you know, we had always been thinking a lot about the ancestors. And I think when Lila was born, we were very excited that this was a little girl who was in the family. And we felt, I felt superstitiously that probably some part of her grandmother might be, you know, coming to her to bless her or returning to us in some way. Matthew and his mom were incredibly close to each other. Um, And as it turns out, just a couple days after we arrived back home with newborn Lila, who, by the way, she was born on December 30th. We brought her home on New Year's Eve and we were living in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which has a ton of different churches all around. And the night we brought her home, it was right before Beyonce was supposed to be checked into the same hospital. So they were super delayed in letting us out of the hospital. We were there, I think by the time we woke up in the morning, we were ready to leave, but they were shutting down the entire hospital floor to get ready for Beyonce. So they didn't let us leave the hospital until 11 at night on New Year's Eve. (laughs) And so we're driving down the FDR highway for anybody who knows New York City at 11 o'clock at 11.30 at night on New Year's Eve with a one-day-old baby. Matthew was just white-knuckling it the whole way down. He was completely tripping. He was like, (laughs) what is about to happen here? These people are going to kill my newborn. What are we going to do? We brought her home. I carried her across the threshold into our apartment at the stroke of midnight, Stephen. And as I walked into the door, all of the churches on the block, their bells started ringing and we could see like fireworks bursting off in the air. So we already felt like Lila was kind of marked with some special vibes. You know, she was being given cool messages from you know her surroundings. And then like two days later, January 2nd, we got this package in the mail. And it was from one of the women in mom's sewing circle. And she had sent a christening gown and a little blanket for a baby, for a girl baby that said all kinds of messages like, you know, babies are a gift from heaven, all kinds of things like that. And it was just so, such an intense feeling, this idea that, you know, that these, these, ancestors were actually still present somehow. But either way, I tell you all of this, the main point that I wanted to mention is that, you know, we had started 
um, kind of our marriage as caregivers. And right after Matthew's mom passed away, my father, who had been sick with an incredibly rare neurodegenerative disease, not dissimilar now, everybody is probably aware that Celine Dion has been diagnosed with something similar. It's very similar to what she has. Um, and basically, we ended up then moving immediately from being caregivers for mom to being part, you know, we weren't primary. My mother was there taking care of my dad, but we were in, very involved in caregiving my father. And that was a 10 year long journey. We fought um, for my father. There was no cure for his illness. It was just going to be, um, you know, just a long, painful journey. And he was also very young. He was 61 by the time he was diagnosed. I mean, actually, he was never diagnosed, but he started showing serious symptoms when he was 61, and we lost him when he was 69. Um, and by that point, you know, he had just, you know, basically he was trapped inside his body. It was a really, really horrible illness. Um, and, you know, there was no support. A lot of the uh, kind of the programs like hospice and all of that, they look for you to have some sort of a terminal diagnosis. But since we couldn't get my father diagnosed, um, we ultimately couldn't get him any of those support services. But, you know, he stayed in, at home. It was incredibly tough. I mean, I think caregiving is always exhausting, but I think 12 years of caregiving, 10 years of caregiving, of watching some of elders that you love who really aren't that elderly and really aren't ready to go and really want to still be here. And, have so much to look forward to still, you know, watching them go through that, you know, watching my mother go through that, like she was, you know, she was younger than my father. She's six years younger than my father. So, you know, by the time he started getting sick, she was in her mid fifties and, you know, just watching them go through that was so painful. I think um, my father died in 2014 and one year later um, I found myself pregnant. I got, I, we had wanted to have a, a second child sooner, but I think with all of the, the pressures of caregiving and work, we were just so um, worn down that it took us some time. After my father passed away, we said, you know, Lila's getting to be three now. We should probably, you know, if we want to have another kid, we should move on that. So I, I got, uh, I got pregnant again in 2014 and lost that pregnancy. Basically, around the one year anniversary of my father's death. So, and then uh, a couple of months later, I got pregnant again with ultimately with the baby that turned out to be Krishna. So I think going into, going into his, the beginning of his life, there had been so much kind of illness and also rare disease. What my father had, pancreatic cancer, they're all incredibly rare diseases. We had such uh, a tradition <laughs> already between the two of us, me and Matthew, of caregiving, of worrying, of fearing death, of living with death, of having, you know, death and illness be, you know, a, an intimate part of how we loved, showed love, experienced love, experienced life together. So um, I think my pregnancy was tough. There were a lot of risks during my pregnancy that I think largely come from just how technologically advanced the scanning technology is now. Like, you know, they were able, they're able to see and detect things that, 
you know, I mean, when I was born, I'm a twin. When I was born, they didn't even know my mother was having twins. <laughs> so, you know, I think um, just how advanced everything is, they can see every little, bl- you know, I mean, like, what a surprise, my poor mother, you know, my brother's born. And then all of a sudden, they're like, Oh, there's another baby. She's like, wait, what? <laughs> so and I think I mean, just childbirth in general, she ended up having just because of, you know, just racism in America, she ended up having a lot of undiagnosed um, risks in pregnancy and ended up um, developing, going into toxic shock after I was born. And she was in a coma for like a couple of weeks, you know, so I think um, I was already pretty scared about pregnancy risks and childbirth. So throughout my pregnancy with Krishna, there were all of these, like we had to do fetal MRIs. There was, they told us that he had uh, a cyst in his brain and they couldn't tell us what it was. And it could potentially be, you know, um, nothing, or it could potentially mean that part of his brain wouldn't form and he would die soon after birth. And it was just too many what ifs and a lot of stress. And, uh, you know, I I think it was a lot of pressure on Lila too, because she was at home with me and, you know, I was picking her up from school and I was pretty sick a lot. So I I think going into him being born, we were already, um, I think, pretty maxed out emotionally from caregiving. We were already in that mindset. And I don't think we were a little, I think we were pretty dissociated, both of us, by the time he was born. Um, We did see a pediatric neurosurgeon when he was like a couple weeks old, you know, I think five weeks old. And it was an amazing visit. The doctor looked at all of his MRIs and all of his files and everything. And he said, you know, I never get to give people good news. And it gives me so much pleasure to tell you that you have a beautiful, healthy, happy baby boy. And just relax, sit back, enjoy him, have fun. And then one week later, he got his first infection and never got better. And, you know, two months later, he was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Hey, wait a minute. She didn't tell us what inspires her or something good even. This show can't be over. And it's not. Kavi's good story continues next Wednesday. Join us then for part two. Until then, be good. <laughs>